I uh, turned 69 years of age last December, just a few months ago, and um, it's, um, it's, it's sobering when you hit certain numbers, and I'm almost at, at the 7-0 number, so pray for me as I approach that. Um, I realized as I was sitting here even tonight, I really am in my 70th year now. When you think about your zero year is a year you live. So that's even more sobering. So pray even more for me, I guess. Every birthday I have, I, my birthday, by the way, is December 27th, just in case you want to make a note of that. It's a neglected birthday. Um, I, the next day, I sit down with my journal and I sort of look at my life and, and say, okay, let's, let's, let's ask this question. What now? What, what do I want to do this next year? How do I want to live my life? How do I, how do I want to take uh, these next months, that, however months that I have before God calls me home or, or whatever, these next 12 months, what do, what do I want to do? I'm realizing, though, with each birthday that I have less time to plan for. When you think about it, it just sort of scoots like that as you grow older. And it makes it a little bit more poignant. A little bit more, a little bit more important, I think, uh, in terms of okay, I really want to use my time well. Um, inside, I feel like 18. Outside, you see what I'm like outside. My my granddaughter a few years ago, she got on my lap and she patted the top of my head and she said, "Oh, Grandpa, what did you do with your hair?" And I said, honey, it's not what I did with my hair. It's what my hair did to me. So uh, she's trying to still process that. What will you do now? What will I do now? Do. How do we put this into motion, this, this faith that we have? How do we, how do we take this and say, okay, I'm going to live this out, what I believe? I hear these themes, and I echo these themes a lot, uh, over and over. I wish I would have done this 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Just fill in your number. And uh, people go, I go, believe that I'm made for something more. I want to use my time well. I, I want to live out what God has called me to do. And if you're like me, uh, sometimes I struggle with this thought that maybe I'm not doing enough. Maybe I'm not quite centered the way I need to be. Maybe I'm not really fulfilling what God's asked me to do. My friend Mark McCloskey, who's, he's probably the most intelligent of, of my friends. He's, he's a brilliant man. He's a, a seminary professor, and he's written books, and he's one of those guys. And uh, he told me when I was 53 years of age that the most productive years of a person's life are the years 55 to 75. And I really like that. At 53, it was fun to hear because I had two years to prepare, right, for the most productive years of my life. I, I believe that to be true. And, and I, I hung on to that like a lifeline. I got, I got some years left before I really have to, have to get it into full gear. A uh, few years later, I asked him, hey, Mark, where'd you, where'd you find that, that tidbit about 55 to 75? Like, what publication was it in? And, and he said, uh, it wasn't any publication. I just made that up. And uh, he's a smart guy, so I said, okay, I'm glad you didn't tell me at the time. I still hold on to it, 55 through 75. Mark is also the guy that told me that, that uh, 60 is the new 40. I, I found comfort in that. Till a few years later, he, he went through a pretty serious uh, medical challenge, and, and as he was recovering, he, he texted me and he said, hey, 60 is the new 80. So uh, that was discouraging. 
we're going to talk about what we do today. We're going to talk about what it is you and I are called to do. If we're truly believers in Jesus, what is it that, that we take and we say, okay, this is the activity that I want to have. In this series, um, Coming to Life, we've talked about what it means to live life, lives that are set apart. And two weeks ago, we talked about holy thinking. When we come to faith in Christ, that, that the whole formulation of our thoughts, uh, Christ challenges us to think in a counterintuitive way. It's, it, he challenges us to think in a countercultural way. And we found out that, that, that holy thinking is cost-productive, um, it, it, cost-effective. It it's something that helps us uh, really invest our time and our thoughts and, and what we do and feel in a way that's going to last for eternity. Last week we talked about feeling. We talked about love, joy, and peace and how God calls us to do that. But today I want us to talk about a, a, a text, really two texts. One's in your bulletins, and you can open your Bibles if you have it to John chapter 12. I want to read that, John 12, 1 through 8. And then there's a parallel text that, that, that colors in some events of this, uh, some aspects of this event uh, in the book of Mark, and I'll read that as well. So beginning with John 12, and we will start uh, in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Uh, Mark, in his gospel, chronicles the same event uh, in, in Mark chapter uh, 14, uh, beginning with verse 3. And Mark just colors in uh, some aspects that, that John doesn't. Uh, While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? Could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them at any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand, to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This is the word of God. Uh, I have a confession to make. This is a, 
This outline is a purloined sermon. Um, not all pastors will tell you that when they, when they sort of borrow sermons from other people, but this is one that I borrowed from uh, a man by the name of Ron Dunn, who I first heard in 1974 and uh, have enjoyed his teaching and preaching ever since. Um, I listened to this message online. His, some of his sermons are still online. He passed away in the early 2000s. But this one sort of rocked me. It's my sermon, but it's his points. And uh, I want I want to want to give him credit for, for what he has shared. And when I listened to this for the first time, it changed my whole perspective of, of what God really calls me to do, what God calls us to do. There are three challenges that come from this text. The first one is this, and uh, it's just a simple statement. Do what you can. Do what you can. The setting here, of course, is Bethany. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. People are talking. There's a great stir. Now there's a celebratory dinner. Mark tells us that's the home of, of a man by the name of Simon. And uh, they, are, they are having this dinner, and it is, it is a festive occasion. Crowd, there are crowds. These, these dinners took place in open courtyard. People would, would, would walk by them and see this. Uh, there was, they were abuzz with, with this wonder that here's a man who raised someone from the dead. They, people were talking. Uh, it was a, it was a um, memorable occasion. Lazarus was even there. Uh, Martha, we know from other texts, Martha was the one who was the older sister, and she was, was very proficient in, in serving, and serving, and so she was in charge of the meal. She's serving all, all this, this group of people. And then you have Mary. Mary, the younger sister. Mary, who uh, in, in uh, another account, while Martha was serving, uh, she sat at Jesus' feet, and she said uh, she, wanted to, she wanted to learn from him. Martha fussing at her because she wasn't helping, and Jesus says to Martha, oh, Martha, Mary's chosen the better thing. But Mary really is just there. Mary's thrilled. Um, she's, she's glad that, that her brother, who was dead, is now alive. She's, she's full of wonder at that. And she wanted somehow to participate. Martha's serving, Lazarus is there, all these people are around, they're talking, and, and Mary says, okay, what can I do? She used something already in her possession. She didn't wait to, for it or, or acquire it in the future. Uh, Mary used what she had already. She was, a, she was marginalized in her, her culture. Her, she was a woman. Uh, her personality was more of an introvert. Her birth order didn't favor her. Her culture didn't honor her as a woman. And her religion didn't, didn't honor her in terms of giving her equal status. All of those things added up to her being a relatively insignificant person when you think about it. But she's, she's full of joy, full of happiness. And she takes something in her possession, this, this jar of perfume. And she takes that and uses it. God does not require of you or me anything that he hasn't already given us, anything that isn't already in our possession. A lot of times we think if God calls us to something great that, that he's got to somehow 
prepare us something for the future. We've got to, we've got to study. We've got to, we've got to become a certain kind of person. That's not the way God calls us. He doesn't require anything of us that he hasn't already given us. And you see this all through Scripture. Moses, when he is the prince of Egypt, he, he realizes that his people uh, are being oppressed, and he tries to, to do some things that, that will help them. And, and in the course of that, he takes the life of another man, and when that's discovered, he's, he's ostracized. He, he's, he's exiled from Egypt, and he goes into, into the wilderness where he lives his second 40 years as a shepherd, someone who just tends animals. Can you imagine going from a prince of Egypt to that role? And then at 80 years of age, he's tending his flock one day, and he, on the mountainside he sees a bush that's burning, and he notices the bush isn't being consumed, and he goes closer to it, and he realizes as he gets close that God is there, and then God uses out of the context of that bush a, that, a, that opportunity to speak to him. And at that time, God says to Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to lead my people into freedom. Moses, 40 years earlier, would have said, I'm your man. I'm the guy. But now Moses is going, I don't, I don't know. And as he, as he talks with God, he asks questions. Question after question. Who am I? Who should I say sent me? What if they don't believe me? I'm not eloquent. And then in the last, last desperate statement, he says, please send someone else. Please send someone else. God says, no, I'm sending you. Moses says, well, how am I going to, what kind of authority will I go? How, how, will, how will they know that you have sent me? And here's what God asks Moses. He says, what is that in your hand? What's in your hand? Moses is holding a staff that he uses to, to, to herd his, his flock. There it is. It's a stick. It's a big stick. Just throw it down on the ground. He throws it on the ground. It turns into a snake. Moses, I don't know how he felt, but that would have been surprising. He grabs it up, turns it back into a stick. God didn't ask Moses to do anything but use what was in his hand. What is that in your hand? Elijah, during a famine, the prophet of Israel goes to a widow, a widow who's got one child, a son, and it is dire straits. It is the last meal. She's got just enough flour and oil to make one loaf of bread. It's one last meal. And Elijah goes to her and says, hey, I want you to bake that up. I want to have a meal. And she says, this is the last of it. He says, we're, we're, we're going to die. He says, I want you to bake it up. In faith, she takes that oil, she takes that flour, mixes it together, and bakes up a piece of bread, but she notices the oil is still in there. In fact, that jar and that container still produce that oil and that flour. And her life, life of her son, Elijah's life, is saved. All she needed to do was what was in her, uses what was in her hands. David, Goliath, what did he use? He used five smooth stones that he found in a brook on his way up to meet the giant, just taking those stones. And really, he just needed one in his hand and then in his sling. When the northern ten tribes of, of Israel were taken into captivity by Assyria, 
there was a general by the name of Naaman, and one of, one of the girls that was, was serving in his household, a, a slave girl, uh, overheard her master talking. Her master had contracted leprosy. It was, a, it was a serious disease, obviously. He didn't know what to do. None of his physicians could help. He, 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 he was absolutely perplexed. What I sh should I do? And this girl, maybe not even a teenager yet, overhears this, and she says this statement to him. If only my master would see the prophet in Samaria. And Naaman asks for more information, and he gets a group together, and he travels from his hometown to Elijah. And he eventually is healed of that disease. The only thing this young girl had was a statement. But she said it. So, what are you going to do for God? What is he calling you to do? Here's the question. What is that in your hand? What's he already put in your possession? A meager supply? A stone? A statement? A stick? God doesn't ask you and me to do the impossible. What he asks is for us to simply take what we have and allow him to multiply it as, as we put it to work. First thing. Do what you can. Second point. Do what you can. Second point. Do that much. Do that much. Mary runs, gets this container of nard. It's very, very expensive perfume, a perfume that's imported from the mountains of India. It was very, very valuable. It was probably, I'm sure it was her most valued possession. And, and, uh, men and women would save these, these containers of perfume for their burial many times. And she had that, and she knew it was valuable. And she took that container, and she took it to where Jesus was having this meal. And it was in an alabaster container. Alabaster, uh, if you've seen alabaster, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a hard, obviously, container, and, and those jars... Uh, antiquity and archaeology shows they had long necks. And to get into it, you, there was no stopper. You had to break the neck. And so she goes to this, to this meal. She, she breaks the neck. And Mark says that she started at the head. John says it ended up at the feet. But you, if you can just picture this, and of course Jesus is there. And she takes this, this container of perfume and she begins to pour it over Jesus' head. And this, this perfume just flows down on his head. Of course, the, these days, the water wasn't plentiful. Uh, perfumes were used. They were used to, to, to make their lives better, and, and, and uh, it was considered a great honor to be anointed in that way. But I'm, I'm sure Mary, as, as, she, as he was, his head was being anointed, she says, there's more in this container. And I think she stooped down, and I think she took the rest of that nard, and she poured it on his feet, did not have a towel, undid her hair, and wiped his feet with her hair. Mark says this wonderful statement, uh, and Young's literal translation says this, what she could, she did, or better put, she did all she could. She did all she could. What God put in her hand, 
she took and honored him. This perfume was worth about a year's wages. You know, it's for, in modern day, it's, it's probably worth $50,000, $60,000. And of course, everyone's in an uproar. Of, wow, that's a, that's a lot of money being poured out right there. Judas is indignant. But Jesus has something else to say to that. Do what you can, but do that much. Our last year in Massachusetts, uh, we had one more Christmas there, and uh, we took our annual Christmas shopping trip. Uh, we lived in Springfield in Western Mass, and, and there was a mall in Ho- Holyoke. It's, 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 you look at it, and you say it looks like Holyoke, but it's Holyoke. That's the way you say it. And uh, we drove north to Holyoke Mall, and it was our family Christmas shopping trip where we give our kids money to buy us presents. Do you have those trips? Yeah, and uh, so um, my son was um, a freshman in, in high school, daughter was in, in, in the uh, sixth grade. So we're at the mall, and, and I'm handing the money. I said, this is the money that you are going to spend now on, on other people here, and, and we're just going to do that. And they, they, they locked in to that, I think, pretty well. My son, as we walked into the mall, the first store, big window, this, this cutlery store. There are knives and all sorts of sharp and shiny objects. He just stood there transfixed looking at these, these instruments of, of, of uh, war almost. And, and uh, he said, Dad, look at this knife. And it was a really cool knife, long, pointy, serrated edge. He goes, Dad, that is a cool knife. Said, that really is. He said, Dad, will you buy me that knife? I said, no, I will not buy you that knife because this is our annual Christmas shopping trip where we give you money to buy presents for people like me, okay? <laughs> and that did not make him happy. He, um, he didn't respond to that, but he sort of shut down emotionally. And it, for the next two hours, we did not have a real festive time at the mall. He, you know, hey, Chris, what do you want to do? No, I don't know. Who do you want to shop for? No, I don't care. You know, that kind of thing. It was just like, oh, 20 yards behind us. It was, not, it was not pleasant, but we made it through. Two hours, two and a half hours later, we're pulling out of the parking lot. And um, I was in grad school at the time, taking, taking uh, some courses in marriage and family therapy. And we, we were taught this, this intervention that you could have called the paradoxical prescription, where where you prescribe for your client the exact opposite behavior you want him or her to have, and in their rebellion, they'll stumble on the healthy way to do it and uh, then, then be better. It doesn't work, by the way, but it was really fascinating. So I thought I'd try it on my son. And I said, Chris, buddy, what you did in that mall, that was great. That, the way you stuffed your anger, the way you, the way you just sort of, that sullenness, that really spoke volumes. Thank you for, thank you for communicating. And... Um, my wife was unprepared for that, and she, her mouth is, is agape, and she's looking at me. And my son, without a moment's hesitation, leaned forward, put his hand on my wife's shoulder and says, don't worry, Mom, it's just something he's learning in school. So uh, that was our Christmas shopping trip. He's now got his doctorate in psychology. You can just imagine the process of getting him there. So uh, early signs, right? Christmas came, and I want to tell you, I had a thought. It wasn't a godly thought, but I thought this. So I wonder if he spent all that money on us. You know, I didn't really add it up. 
Because when I give my kids money to do stuff for other people, I want them to spend it all. God gives you things. God gives you gifts. God gives you abilities. God gives you opportunities. Too many times I find myself doling out my obedience in little dribs and drabs, keeping something for myself all the time. Now Mary, Mary took the bottle and she broke it and she poured that whole thing and anointed Jesus in her joy and in her worship of him. Do what you can. Do that much. Last point. Do it now. Do it now. Mark. Mark, Mark adds the grace note on this that I think is just it's so beautiful. Everyone's fussing. What, what are you, what woman, what are you doing? That's a waste. And Jesus says, no. When Jesus says this about you, you know you're in, in good shape. She has done a beautiful thing. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. And truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are, thousands of years later, still talking about Mary. Still talking about her. John, John says, Mary's doing this, and you can just see, John paints the picture. He says, the room was filled with a fragrance. The room was filled with a fragrance. Ripple effects of simple acts of obedience. Ripple effects. The first Bible study I had at, at the school where I was doing ministry had three guys in this Bible study, J.G., Reed, and Rick. They all went into to ministry. Um, Reed came to that Bible study, uh, not a believer. He was invited by his friend J.G., and um, I got to know him, and he kept coming, and he came to faith. He told me later, he says, the reason I came back was the way you said hi to me when I came in the room. I didn't know you, and it was the way you said hi to me. I said, I had no, I had no recollection I even said hi to him. Reed uh, went into ministry, and then later on he decided he'd go to dental school and became an orthodontist. He, he's in Salem, Oregon, and he's got a practice there. And, and part of his practice, I mean, he has dedicated to, to doing what God wants him to do. You see it in the wall hangings in his office, but he has... Uh, kids come in from, from that community who cannot afford any kind of dental care, and he has them in the chair, and he begins to work with their teeth and straighten their teeth and give them that just free of charge. And he will t to each kid, he will go to them, and he will look down, and he says, do you know why you're here? Do you know why you're here? And, kid, you know, these 10, 11-year-old kids are going, because you did this for excuse. I didn't do it. He says, you know why you're here? You're here because of Jesus. That's why you're here. Every kid, that's his conversation. That's his ripple act of obedience. My buddy Rick went on into the pastorate, and 
I sat in, in his church, 32 years he served, same church, Lakes Evangelical Free Church, Lindstrom, Minnesota. I didn't know what I was doing. I just showed up. You don't need to know what you're doing. You just need to do it now. One week later, from this event, Mary went with two other women with some more spices. This time they were going to a tomb. The man they loved was dead. And they said, we got to go do something. Let's make sure his body's appropriately anointed. And they go to this tomb, and they find it empty. If Mary would have waited to anoint Jesus, she would have been one week too late. December 2012, I sat at Calibri restaurant, Mexican restaurant in, in Bald downtown Baldwin Park with John Parker, Andy Simons, Jeff Kern. And uh, this church had just had some very dramatic things happen. And uh, they asked me if I wouldn't be willing to give as much time as I could to uh, filling the pulpit for the next six months. And I, that was a surreal time for me. I did not expect it. I was just like, I didn't know what to say. Here's one thought I had, though. I said, oh, if it had only been 20 years earlier, right? Then I'd have really been ready, right? But that was the time. So for all of us, in, 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 as we're called to come to life, as we're called to, to live lives that are set apart, holy lives, if you want to accomplish something significant, something that will change lives, we need to take what we have, as little at times as that might be, and we take it to Jesus and we see him multiply it. Jesus says in Mark 9, anyone who gives a cup of water in my name, a cup of water in my name, will certainly not lose their reward. Jesus will take it. What he's already given us and he'll change the world with it. A meager supply, bake it up and watch God nourish continually. A stone, pick it up and watch God turn the tables. A statement, speak up and watch the salvation of sinners. A stick, take it up, lead a nation. Do what you can, do that much, do it now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this woman, this woman Mary. Who is obedient to take what she had and use it for your glory. And I pray for myself and each person here that we would do the same. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we have to serve you in whatever capacity that you call us. 
But God, help us not just to know things. Help us not just to feel things. Help us to take what we have and in obedience do what we can to love and serve those around us. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Thank you for your life that you gave freely for us. Thank you for the salvation we have in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.